Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. I kick off this week by reporting that we have reached another landmark in the history of this podcast. This week is the 150th edition, and I'm happy to say that our listener numbers continue to grow and reach new highs. So thank you to everyone who continues to tune in uh, from all corners of the globe. We've come a long way from our early tentative efforts in the immediate aftermath of the first pandemic three years ago. And boy, what interesting times we've lived through. Never a dull moment. This week, in addition to reviewing the week's most important news and announcements from the investment trust sector, and quite a turbulent week it's been, I have to say, I'm joined by Nicholas Weindling, the Tokyo-based manager of the JP Morgan Japanese Investment Trust, who gives us an interesting take on how the world looks from the other side of the globe, and by Ross Driver, co-manager of the Foresight Solar Fund, ticker FSFL, one of the pioneers in the renewable energy sector, which will be celebrating its 10th anniversary as a listed investment trust later this year and is coming off its best year so far. NAV total return was 24% in 2022, according to its latest results out this week. But it's facing, in common with most of its peers in the renewable energy sector, a more demanding future environment for a variety of reasons that we uh, discuss in our conversation. For subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, the podcast's sister subscription publication, this week we have a profile of the European Smaller Companies Trust, ticker ESCT, once known as TR European Growth. Uh, older listeners may remember it as such. It's been managed by Ollie Beckett of Janus Henderson since 2010. This will be followed next week by a profile of Harmony Energy Income Trust, ticker HEIT. And on the uh, Moneymaker Circle, you will find our usual summary of all the main news and NAV share price and discount movements in the investment trust sector this week, and also over year-to-date and over longer periods. Plus some comments on the current outlook in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse and the clouds that have been gathering this week around not only the Swiss bank Credit Suisse, but also some other banks. Having ended last week with the news of the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, This week, the markets have been understandably preoccupied with the fallout from that dramatic and uh, mostly unanticipated event, the biggest bank failure since the global financial crisis. Bank shares generally have been under pressure with contagion spreading to Europe as well as other banks in the US. Credit Suisse, uh, reliably disappointing as ever, was forced to seek an emergency loan from the Swiss Central Bank to reassure investors that uh, after more than a decade of Troubles, including losses, bad loans, poor internal controls and various scandals, it was still solvent. While First Republic Bank in the United States received an emergency funding loan from a group of big name US banks uh, after its shares also went precipitously down in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Although unfortunately that was not enough to prevent its shares falling further yesterday uh, after the announcement of that move by those other big banks. Silicon Valley Bank, meanwhile, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And fallout from these banking worries could be seen in the marked reaction of bond markets, where yields on government debt fell sharply in both the UK and the US, and in the commodity markets, where oil was down more than $10 a barrel over the week, and copper also weakened, uh, both indicative of the concerns that uh, trouble in the banks is almost always followed by a contraction of credit and a slowdown in economic activity. Uh, Will this time be different? Gold, meanwhile, a traditional safe haven in times of financial stress, was notable for rising nearly $100 an ounce and is now back within touching distance of the symbolic $2,000 an ounce mark. The equity markets were not not immune from this fallout. Although there were mixed fortunes on both sides of the Atlantic, the S&P 500 was up a little over 1% and NASDAQ up more than 5% over the week. So the American markets were up. But most other equity markets were well down, with the UK FTSE 100 and all share indices among the worst performers, both down more than 5% on the week. So indicative of the change in sentiment that uh, the fallout from the bank problems is having. 
With interest rate expectations now reversing, it was notable that some of the sectors that had been most affected by fears of still ever-rising higher rates, such as technology stocks, were among the more resilient performers. The Investment Trust Index, which tracks about 180 of the trusts that are included in the FTSE Allshare Index, has given up all its earlier gains uh, this year and is now down just over 3% year-to-date, while the average capitalization-weighted discount has moved out uh, a little further to nearly 16%, uh, which is a big change from just 2.5%, which is where it was at the start of 2022. We also this week, uh, somewhat overshadowed, had the UK budget, which was notable for Jeremy Hunt's decision to scrap the lifetime limit on uh, tax-free pension contributions and an increase in the annual tax-free pension contribution an individual can make from 40000 to 60000 It also, however, confirmed the already proposed increases in corporation tax, the reduction in personal dividend and capital gains tax allowances from next financial year, and the freeze on income tax allowances, which will bring more income into higher tax rate bands. All these measures obviously reinforce the case for investors looking to maximise their pension and ISA contributions in the interests of good financial planning. Turning to results this week, it's been another busy week with a number of large and well-known trusts reporting their annual results with contrasting outcomes in a number of cases. Those reporting annual results included the private equity trust HG Capital, ticker HGT, which reported a positive NAV total return of 5.4% for 2022, although this was not enough to prevent its shares falling 15% over the year and moving out to a discount. Allianz Technology Trust, ticker ATT, also produced its annual results, and the NAV total return there was minus 33%, 7% below its benchmark. It was in the eye of the storm, obviously, of the market decline last year, the technology sector, and the share price total return was actually minus 40%, as its shares also moved out to a discount, despite buybacks by the board. And WITAN, W-T-A-N is the ticker there, the Global Equity Trust, and adopts a multi-manager strategy. Its NAV total return was down a disappointing 10.3%, some 4% worse than the 6.2% decline in its benchmark. Gearing, which was 14% at the end of 2022, obviously did contribute to that relatively disappointing performance. Witten is, however, one of the ASC's veteran dividend heroes, trusts which have increased their dividends for more than 20 consecutive years. And Witten's latest increase is its 49th consecutive increase, and leaves it trading on a 2.65% dividend yield. JP Morgan Claverhouse, uh, ticker JCH, the UK Equity Income Trust, is one year ahead of Witten in the select group of veteran dividend heroes. It announced its 50th consecutive dividend increase this week, and that, of course, yields 4.9%, much higher yield available on the UK market. Its NAV in 2022 total return was down 4.6%, against a flat benchmark. In passing, I should say it's also cutting its investment management fee, as many of these big uh, veteran trusts have had to do in recent years. Also, annual results from AVI Japan Opportunity, uh, AJOT, where the NAV total return was minus 4.3%, slightly worse than its 1% decline in its benchmark. Schroeder Asian total return, ticker ATR, where there the NAV total return was minus 12.7% versus minus 7.1%, so a 5% underperformance of its benchmark. And there were contrasting annual results also from two renewable energy trusts. Foresight Solar, with its aforementioned positive 24% NAV total return, the dividend there also comfortably covered by earnings, and the more highly geared Premier Might and Global Renewables, ticker PMGR, which reported a disappointing NAV total return of minus 12.1% against its particular benchmark, which is the S&P Global Clean Energy Index, which was actually up 6.6% during the year. Though the full-year dividend with Premier Might and Global Renewables was uh, 7p, was also fully covered. Interim results and NAV updates, there were some few of those, but they are listed in our weekly summary on the Moneymakers website. On the corporate side, we had a further update from HomeReit, the troubled provider of accommodation for the homeless, whose shares have been suspended for several weeks and remain suspended. The board says it is now considering all its options and has started a process to consider candidates to replace Alvarium as its investment advisor. It says it's been in close contact with Scottish Widows, which is its main lender. 
It's finalizing the audit with BDO, the accountants, and uh, the investigation by a specialist consulting firm is continuing into what's gone wrong there, why rent collection has collapsed at home REIT. Meanwhile, discussions with Blue Star, which has come out saying it was considering a cash offer for the whole of home REIT. The deadline for them to come forward and either make a bid or walk away has been extended to the 13th of April. So there's a longer wait still for shareholders to find out what might be happening as far as home REIT is concerned. Two more trusts, meanwhile, have come out to say that they're considering liquidating because their boards consider them either to be too small to be viable or too small to grow, given persistent discounts. One of those is Edison Property Investment Company, ticker EPIC, which has a market capitalization of around 125, 130 million. It was launched in 2014, but more recently changed its strategy in 2021, with not very good timing to concentrate on retail warehousing. The board says it continues to see attractive opportunities, but believes that consolidation of the sector is advisable. So it's conducting a strategic review with a preference for a merger with another REIT, but all options, it says, remain open. And the second trust to come out saying it's proposing liquidation or alternatives is Aberdeen Latin American Income Fund, ticker ALAI, which has a market cap of just 32 million. And that is proposing a summary wind-up with a return of cash to shareholders. Too small, really, to consider alternatives, such as a rollover into another trust. We can report that uh, Rights and Issues Trust, which has recently been uh, handed to Jupiter to manage following the retirement of its uh, long-serving manager, Simon Knott, is proposing a 10-for-1 share split subject to approval at an AGM. And Supermarket Income REIT, ticker SUPR, announced that it's selling its interest in its joint venture with Sainsbury's for $430 million, which will be used to reduce its debt and hopefully uh, alleviate some of the concerns about its uh, balance sheet, the amount of debt it has. Uh, Literacy Capital, a ticker book, B-O-O-K, meanwhile announced the sale of its fourth largest portfolio company, Colonel Global, for $18.6 million, which is a 49% premium to its carrying value. Clearly, the trust hopes that this will provide some comfort to its shareholders that despite the market scepticism about the reliability of NAVs that are being announced by private equity trusts, they hope that the scepticism, which has seen most private equity trust shares move out to a discount, will provide some comfort that there's still real value in its portfolio. Finally, there was a bizarre story this week reported by the Financial Times concerning Scottish Mortgage, ticker SMT where one of its non-executive directors, a US-based academic and author, Professor Amar Bide, I hope I pronounced that right, who was only appointed in 2020, he told the newspaper that he'd been removed from the board after disagreeing on some issues, although Fiona McBain, the chair of the trust, came out a day later to say that this was actually not the case. He still remains a director. Professor Bide said in his uh, conversation with the newspaper that uh, Bailey Gifford lacked the capabilities or governance clout to monitor its holdings of minority stakes in private companies effectively. Well, whatever the truth behind this story, and I'm struggling to remember another example of what appears to be a boardroom debate of this kind bursting out into the open in a somewhat unorthodox way, it does highlight again the issue of Scottish mortgages' hefty holdings of minority interests in unlisted private companies. The shares in Scottish Mortgage were down 1% this week, while the discount remains out at an unprecedented 18%. I suspect we've not heard the end of this particular story. So it was a pleasure to catch up this week with uh, Nicholas Windling, who is the lead manager of the JP Morgan Japanese Investment Trust. Japan is a market I've been following for many years, and uh, it's been through some very interesting, tough structural changes over that period. Back in the 1980s, the Japanese market counted for, I think, something like 60% of global market capitalization. Now that's down to, I don't know what you're saying, Nicholas, about around 6%, I think, of the global market, something like that. So there's been a long period as the Japanese has wrestled against the risk of deflation. But it hasn't stopped investors making some returns from the Japanese market. And we can talk about that in a moment. First of all, I'd like to start off, Nicholas, by asking you just to define your style as an investor. You've been doing this now since 2010. You have a well-established style. And 
Perhaps you could just remind us what that is, what your approach is in relatively brief terms. Well, thanks for having me on, Jonathan. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so very grateful to be here. Um, in terms of the trust itself, we are looking for quality and growth businesses in Japan. But to put it another way, we're really looking for the very best companies in Japan over the next five to 10 years. We're looking for premium companies, and we're really looking to do it in an unconstrained way. So wherever the best opportunities are, whatever sectors they're in, whatever market cap they are, that's what we're looking to put into the trust. And if we don't like it, we won't own it. Okay, so you've got a relatively high active share. You're not tracking the index. And you also, I think, have more or less sort of permanent gearing in the trust as well. Is that right? Which also contributes to the idea that this is going to be a volatile performer in share price terms. But uh, your belief is that over the longer term, the, the value of those companies you're investing in is going to come through. Right. Well, first of all, yes, it's an unconstrained approach. And I think that that is very important in Japan because while we think that there are companies with really fantastic prospects over the next five to 10 years, there are equally areas where the outlook is much less good, where there are structural issues or maybe companies are losing competitive. And we really don't need to have exposure to those areas at all. So I think that unconstrained approach is uh, and I feel very fortunate that I'm able to manage money in that way within the investment trust. And as for the gearing, you're right that it is quite a reasonably high level. It is a function of do we have sufficiently good opportunities? And it's really led by what we see at individual company level. And a feature of the Japanese market is that it's an extremely broad market. I mean, there are 4,000 listed companies overall. And even if you take it down to kind of well, what is the investable number, we'd still be looking at roughly 1,500. So it's a very, very good market for picking stocks. And you don't have the index dominated by those really huge companies that you might see, for example, in the UK market or the Swiss market. It's a great market to find stocks to invest in. Also, of course, you manage a, a UK listed investment trust. What is the impact of currency on your performance? I mean, we know the yen has been a very weak recently, in part because of the way that the central bank is running its monetary policy. What is the impact of currency on you and how do you manage that? Well, we don't hedge the currency at all within the trust. And although I can give you an opinion on what might happen to the currency, I'd say it's good. we've got a roughly 50% chance of being correct. And we really want to make sure we have the right companies. And of course, you know, there are some which may do well in a strong yen environment or weak yen environment. Ultimately, if we've got the best companies who've got pricing power and strong balance sheets, they can cope whatever the environment. So we don't really spend that much time thinking about it. We have very good opportunities in domestic Japan, but we equally have great exporting companies as well. We look at the overall effect by picking company A and B who has on our overall exposure, but it's not something that we're particularly looking to focus on when it comes to currency. But you're right, it is extreme. The yen has been very weak. And um, yeah, I'm based here in Tokyo. And just to give you an example, I was out for my lunch today, which was some spicy tofu with rice and a bowl of miso soup and some dumplings with it, which, you know, in a sit down restaurant in the very heart of the business district here in Tokyo, cost me a thousand yen, which is roughly six pounds. And I don't think that that is possible to do in any sit down restaurant, actually, in the center of London, you know, far from it. I'm not, not sure if I get a Boots meal deal. So, you know, we are very aware of what's happening with the currency from that respect. And Japan does feel quite cheap just from living here. Yeah, that's a very noticeable point at the moment. So before we just look at the performance and the opportunities now from here in terms of valuations and so on, can you tell us, taking all these factors into account, when does your trust tend to do well and when does it tend to lag the market? Obviously, there are periods of, of both those conditions, but uh, in general terms, when do you do well and when do you do uh, relatively poorly? Yeah, it's very important to understand that we do have this unconstrained approach looking to invest in the very best companies in Japan. And performance, although over the long term is generally good, it, it is volatile. And you know, if you have a slow growth economy, that tends to be an environment we do well. Companies that deliver on their earnings get rewarded. In a recession, we tend to do well because the companies we have have very strong balance sheets. Um, there's no question about, you know, are they going to survive? Um, but when you get big inflection points in the economy, and arguably in the global economy, that's what we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months with you know, inflation rising all over the world, that can be a more difficult environment for us, which has proved to be the case in the last year and has been the case before, actually. For example, the second half of 2016 was also a very difficult period. But 
in the long term, investing in the way we do, we think is absolutely the way to go for Japan. Well, I was looking at your performance this morning before we talked, and it's interesting because you did particularly well in uh, 2020, uh, the pandemic year. Then 2021, I think you, you sort of went sideways a little bit. And then last year was very difficult for you, as indeed for many, many other investors, it has to be said. It wasn't a great year last year, was it? But the impact of that has been that, you know, the valuations of the companies you own has begun to look a lot more attractive than they did before. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I think a lot of people feel like, for example, in 2022 that there was a sell-off in unprofitable tech and these high growth companies which weren't making any money but actually one of the defining features of what was going on in japan certainly last year was it was the most profitable companies with the strongest balance sheets and the best free cash flow and the best competitive positions these were the ones that did very badly and they were derated and what it means is that when you look at the portfolio that we have right now, not only is it at a lower valuation than it was pre-COVID, but it's gone well beyond that now. And so for the kind of quality that we get in terms of valuation, as attractive as it's looked in quite some time. Can you put that in terms of numbers, in terms of absolutes? What kind of forward PE are you looking at, for example, on your portfolio? Well, two big things to know about that I think are different about the way we manage money. One is that we're based here on the ground in Tokyo, which can seem quite an odd thing to stress, but there are many managers who aren't based here. uh, And I think we get tremendous benefit out of that. And secondly, we try to take a very long-term view. So when we look at valuations, we deliberately look at least five years out and how will the growth be from year five. But to come back to your question, right now for the trust overall, the valuation one year out will be around 18 times earnings, which is versus around 13 for the market overall. Now, I think that is absolutely justified by the significantly better long-term growth prospects. We have a much stronger balance sheets. And I'm very aware that we could bring that down by buying into certain sectors, for example, the Japanese car sector, which would bring that P down dramatically. But we don't believe that we should be doing that because we think the long-term outlooks there, and just an aside, the Japanese have effectively failed to launch an electric vehicle so far, that these are our major structural issues. And we really need to avoid those value trap sectors. So that's the potential PE on the portfolio and the way that you look at it. What about where we are in the kind of Japanese market cycle now? In other words, the Japanese economy has not been growing very fast for quite a long time, but uh, particularly there have been the impact of COVID in China and elsewhere and indeed in the country itself. So tell me why you're optimistic about Japan as an investment destination at the moment. Well, firstly, although it's absolutely true that Japanese GDP has done nothing for, I mean, a really long time, Actually, EPS growth in local currency terms is as strong as it is for the S&P 500. So that really points to what are the actual companies doing? This is a very strong point about why be interested in Japan in the beginning. Secondly, again, talking about the long term, there is nothing short of a corporate governance revolution happening in this country. You know, the conversations we have with companies are completely different. We see record buybacks, record dividends. And we have a lot more to go on this journey. I mean, I wouldn't at all claim that Japan is where it needs to be. But the fact that things are improving is very, very powerful. And I think still underappreciated because it really comes up in the meetings because most people want to know about the yen or monetary policy. And then turning to the shorter term, it's important to understand that Japan is in quite a different part of the economic cycle. We're only just really reopening here. In fact, the general wearing mask mandate only was dropped this week for Japan. And now it's a, a personal choice whether you want to wear a mask or not. So, I mean, that's something that most people in the UK, I think you can hardly remember the days of going around wearing masks all the time. So that's different. Secondly, Japan was closed to visitors until October last year. So we only just start to see the return of tourists. That's significant. In 2019 pre-pandemic, we had 32 million tourists coming here, which was up from 8 million just 10 years before that. So they've all started to return. And then I think very importantly, Japan's largest trading partner is China. And the Chinese economy is reopening. Now, there are issues in China to do with regulation and how things can very suddenly change. But if you can get that exposure to China through a very stable market where there are inalienable property rights and a very stable government here, you don't have to deal with the same kind of issues. And actually, Japan is one of the best ways to gain exposure to those growth areas. In the areas, things like robotics and automation, these are very big areas for us. So 
it puts Japan at a very different kind of point right now in terms of the economic cycle. And the final point I'd make on this, and I accept that I'm an active manager, so I would say this, but there's a tremendous opportunity for active managers because in Japan, half of companies have no sell-side analysts writing about them. And that is an enormous opportunity to find the equivalent figures in the US and, and Europe are dramatically lower. So it really is an area that people have sort of forgotten about. And, and, it, and then we can find companies with very strong niches. So in a nutshell, that's why I'd say the opportunities are. I mean, I guess the other point to make is that I mean, this has been true for many years. I think I remember when I talked to some Japanese families back 20 years ago, they were saying, you know, one of the keys to the Japanese market, unfortunately, is the level of interest from overseas buyers. In other words, it's very sensitive to how many overseas investors are investing in Japan. And at the moment, the proportion of international equity managers who have money in Japan seems to be very, very low. So what do you think it's going to take to get them to come back and become perhaps the marginal buyers who will help to drive the, the market back up again? Well, firstly, in terms of who's buying the Japanese equity market, I think that one of the really outstandingly interesting things is that Japanese companies buying their own shares is a new category which just didn't ever exist before. So this is just a side interesting point. In terms of you know why will foreigners come to look at Japan? Well, I think if the earnings growth is there, then they will look. And the valuations on the market overall, you know, relative to the last 10 years, Japan trades on one standard deviation cheap, whether it's on price to earnings or price to book. And I think in the last year, one of the things that people have been concerned about is the degree to which the currency was weak. So just as a reminder, the yen dollar went from roughly 110 to 150, which is an enormous move for one of the world's big three developed market currencies. And as you alluded to earlier, a lot of that is to do with difference in monetary policy between the US and Japan, or even for that matter, the UK and Japan. But if you can get some kind of, maybe the hiking cycle will come something that we can start to see it might end in the US or the UK. And Japan's a slightly different point in terms of monetary policy. This again will remove that kind of thing that people have been worried about. There is a new governor of the Bank of Japan which has replaced the previous incumbent who had this very, uh, I don't know how to describe it, anomalous uh, approach to monetary policy, very different to everybody else around the world anyway, yield curve control and so on. And uh, that's been a factor in the way that uh, outsiders, I think, view Japan. Interest rates have obviously been controlled there. Do you think there's going to be a change with the new central bank government? I mean, he's saying he's going to do much the same thing, but do you actually think this could be a turning point, which in turn might then give a, another reason to invest in Japan? Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think it's not unreasonable to expect there be some change because there are big things happening here, which don't sound big maybe in the global context, but are very big in a Japanese context. So if you look at inflation in Japan right now, it's just over 4%. You know, most developed markets would kill for 4% inflation, but that is the highest inflation we've had here for decades. And if you look at wage growth in Japan, for example, in August last year, wages were growing around 1.8% in Japan, which is nothing compared to what is going on in anywhere else in the developed world. And you have strikes as people are asking for more pay in the UK and so on. And so 1.8% is a very low level, but it is also the highest level we've seen for 20 years. And we now see announcements from companies. I mean, we've seen high profile announcements from companies like Toyota, Honda, and Uniqlo, the fashion retailer. But we've also seen announcements from companies like Eon, which is the biggest supermarket chain here in Japan. They employ well over half a million people. They're increasing their wages by 7% for full and part-time workers. So this is an important change. And it could, I'm not saying this is definitely going to happen, but it could mean that you really start to see some impetus behind the domestic economy. And you know, a little bit of inflation in Japan is actually quite a welcome thing because Japan has been pretty much mired in deflation for 20 years now. So it can be a big shift, but we don't expect a big sudden change in the policy. And when also you've got to put it in the context of the degree of that change, right? You're talking about going from, for example, a negative interest rate, because we still have negative interest rates here, to maybe a zero interest rate. This is way off what we're talking about with the Bank of England or the US Fed. You know, and I, you know, with my mortgage that we have on where we live here in Tokyo, you know, I've got a fixed rate at 0.59%. You know, it is light years away from what we're talking about in the rest of the world. But that's not to say it's not important in a, in a Japan context. 
So your lunches are going to get a bit more expensive, maybe, and your mortgage may go up a little bit, but uh, the reward for that will be that the economy is behaving uh, differently from the way it's done before. Let's wrap this up by asking you then just to tell us in brief again, we're looking forward here. You know, I'm thinking about investing in Japan. I'm looking at the options. There's about half a dozen uh, Japanese investment trusts to look at. What's different about yours and how do you, you know, measure yourself against your peer group? Well, firstly, we're based here on the ground in Tokyo. And that means with 25 fund managers and analysts finding those uncovered companies, I mean, great that people aren't looking, but somebody's got to look. So we've got that resource to do it. Secondly, you know, we can tap into all of JP Morgan Asset Managers analysts globally. Now, that can be very important in assessing the competitive advantage, right? So a big area for us is something like robotics and automation. And we've seen the Japanese lose market share in other areas. They clearly have lost in things like consumer electronics or shipbuilding. And it's very important. It doesn't happen in other areas. So that's a very important advantage that we have. And we also try to take a long-term view, and that's reflected in the level of turnover that you see in the trust, which is, over the last couple of years is around 20%. I also say that we really try to make full use of the investment trust structure. That means by using the gearing, which is there, and also being able to go into slightly more um, smaller cap names down the market cap structure. So wherever the best ideas in the market we are able to invest in them. And that is tremendously exciting. I just, a company that we've added to this year, a company called Nakanishi, a global leader in hand pieces used by dentists, like dental drills and, and these kind of things. And their wires are used by brain surgeons. And it's growing very fast. It's global number one. It's got extremely high margins. It's trading on a, a mid-teens multiple. I mean, that is dramatically too low. And that's the kind of opportunities that we are able to find. And I hope we find them, we own them, and we own them for very long periods of time. And then on the investment trust structure, I think it's fair to say your shares normally trade at a discount. I don't think they've ever traded at a premium. Do you think there's any potential that might happen if the Japanese market revives? And what's your policy about buybacks and so on? Do you employ them and to what extent? Well, one big change that's happened in the time that I've been involved with the board and the trust is firstly, that we've moved away from being a kind of core offering. And I think that, you know, for a core Japan exposure, I'd say, well, buy the ETF, you know, it's a very low cost exposure and really just make sure that it's clear that we have this unconstrained approach buying the best companies. And secondly, we've become much more focused on the board, much more focused on the discount, what is the right level the discount should be, and not just the level of that, but ultimately, how do we get this trust moving to NV and to a premium and, and issuing shares? And you know, if we can be the best performing trust within the sector and that people start to look at Japan again as an asset class positively, there's no reason why that shouldn't happen. But the change in the tone from the board in the time that I've been involved with the trust is very marked. And uh, although they ask difficult questions of me and Miyako as the managers, from a shareholder's perspective, I, you know, I think that they're doing a, a fantastic job. Okay, well, that has been Nicholas Weidling, the manager of the JP Morgan Japanese Investment Trust. I wish him well and, uh, and thank him for his kind comments about the podcast. Uh, I hope he carries on listening and we will uh, no doubt return to the subject of Japan because I think it is an interesting moment in the development of that market. And uh, I, for one, am certainly looking at it quite closely. So this week, I was happy to catch up with Ross Driver, who is the co-lead manager of the Foresight Solar Fund, which has been one of the pioneers in the renewable energy sector. It's been listed since 2013, coming up to its 10th anniversary. I thought I'd kick off, Ross, before we look at your latest results, which came out this week. Uh, I thought I'd kick off by just looking back to the start of this particular trust. You only joined Foresight a couple of years ago, but you have 17 years of experience in the infrastructure sector. And Foresight Solar, I did a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation. Very rough, rule of 72 rather than uh, discounted <laughs> numbers and so on. But basically, on my reckoning, since the trust was launched, you've achieved a share price total return of somewhere north of 7% and an NAV total return somewhere north of 9%. Uh, obviously, the shares have moved to a discount recently. We'll come back and talk about that. So that's pretty much in line with your original target of what the prospectus said. So how do you think where you are? How is this uh, fund where it is in terms of its near tenure history? Yeah, thanks for that, Jonathan. I think it's an interesting place to be. And also, you talk about the history of the fund. We're in our 10th year. Later this year, we'll have our celebration of that. And yeah, you've got it on. I think we're about 7.8% annualized total shareholder return since IPO and about 9% on the total NAV return. 
I think it's an interesting time to join Foresight Solar as well, particularly, and that was part of the reason that the team wanted to bring somebody else on. The fund uh, originally grew to the size it pretty much is at the moment, off the back of investing mainly in a large portfolio of UK rock-backed solar in terms of that when the subsidies were there and built up a large portfolio in the UK and then expanded over into Australia. So look to diversify in the solar markets and more recently in the last few years into Spain as well, which is uh, the portfolio that they acquired in about end of 2020 and we've just bought through into operations now. There's a number of other things. It's fair to say originally when the fund was set up, it was mainly acquiring projects that were operational, that had been built out, constructed by others. And it was very much a sort of yield play in terms of that, like a lot of the others. You've got the big six listed um, renewable vehicles that all came out at a similar time, offering variants on a theme, I think. I've worked closely with some of those over the years, but we all got our own niches. There's the other couple of solar funds out there as well, and you've got the wind and the diversified ones. But everybody's looking at their own angle on a similar theme. But why particularly Foresight Solar, I guess? Well, I was attracted by the changes in the way that the fund was looking to go forward. Before I joined it, it uh, changed the mandate to move into battery storage, an area that I'd worked in quite a bit. And I see definitely there's a, a large opportunity there. And there was a recognition that we could do more to diversify the fund further in terms of the most recent change that we've made is moving into development stage projects. As we noted in our annual results, we're on the verge of signing our first portfolio in that space in Spain as well. But I think that's saying it's a good name, got the Foresight brand behind it as well. And it's looking towards the next stage of growth of the fund. And I found that a very exciting opportunity to be able to step into that, to something that uh, my colleague Ricardo has led for many years and be able to help drive the fund to the next stage of growth. Okay, so there's a few things there to unpack a little bit. First of all, well, let's just talk about your results last year. Obviously, we know it was a remarkable year in many ways last year. We had the soaring power prices. We had the invasion of Ukraine and so on contributing it, higher inflation, rising bond yields. And then at the end of the year, we had governments coming and uh, trying to tax some of what your limits, some of your, your gains that you'd made. But uh, just tell us quickly, I mean, the performance at an operational level last year was pretty good. Tell us about the results in, in very broad terms, in terms of NAV and so on. So in the highlights, I think we had... For the UK and the UK portfolio, we had the best year on record, and that's in the 10-year history in terms of that. I mean, it was driven, obviously, by the very good weather we had. We had a cracking summer. We had a good spring and a good autumn as well, and some very high irradiation in the UK. But I think it's also credit to the operational team that we there because uh, we had high levels of availability, so we were able to capture that. If your sites are down and you're having issues with them or the DNOs are shutting you down, then you're going to lose some of that ability to capture that as well. So from the operational side was very good in the UK and also on the price fixing side as well. So we, we have a bit of an active price fixing policy where we'll roll forward and the team will, will fix at certain points ahead. We've done that on a rolling basis over the years. We can fix out to almost five years ahead, depending on the liquidity. So we'll pick certain areas or certain sectors, half year fixes to try and build up the dividend cover going forwards. So I think we're very happy with the performance of the UK. goes without saying, we also have Australia, where there have been more issues there in terms of the actual generation. But that's mainly driven by the fact, I wouldn't have thought I'd be saying this when I was growing up watching neighbours and home and away on TV and Australia was the land of sunshine, but they seem to have been pretty hard hit recently, mainly by the La Nina weather phenomenon. So they've had some pretty bad uh, summers and there's been a lot of heavy rain and a lot of storms there. So that's the real thing that unfortunately is uh, affecting the Australian assets at the moment. It does have a bit of a feedback loop. So while we're about 12% down on the actual generation, feedback loop, because obviously Australia does rely on a lot of solar and rooftop as well. That's a bit of a feedback loop that if the solar isn't generating as much, it actually feeds back into the power prices and pushes the power prices up too. So whilst generation in Australia was down, the revenues were up about 15% for the year over forecasts. So it's a bit of a mixed bag there, but overall still above budget and power prices are higher in Australia as well. So in terms of the UK, what uh, proportion of the revenues you make comes from the UK and uh, how is that going to change on your present plans and how would you like that to change looking ahead maybe five years? It's about 75% coming through from the UK at the moment that you'll see in the annual report. That will drop slightly as we've got Spain coming through now, which will be 11% of total generation 
probably a similar amount of revenues, maybe a bit higher because obviously Spain is a very sunny place. And it's also down to our um, price fixing strategy. So we signed up to some long-term PPAs for the Spanish projects with AAA rated counterparties. We've got those in place for 10 years. That allows us to gear up those projects a little bit, put a modest level of debt in there to help with the returns as well. I think we're very happy. The idea overall that the original thesis of the move to Australia and the move into Spain as well has been diversification. And I think that shows benefits. You can see it at the moment. Yes, it is unfortunate that uh, obviously Australia is being hit by the lower radiation at the moment. But um, the UK at the moment is doing incredibly well. But there's nothing to say that with the climate the way it is at the moment, that La Nina may drop and the UK may uh, suffer worse summers in the next few years. We'd hope the, the south of Spain, where most of our projects are, will generally stay sunny. But that's that's it. It's a, it's a diversification strategy for revenues as well as geographies and technologies that we look at. And that's something we're looking to build out further with the move into battery storage. That's a differentiated revenue stream as well. And then I think we can always talk a bit about the development portfolio as well, because we think that brings another exciting addition to the fund too. So the logic behind development is that there's potentially higher margins to be made, or not higher margins, but higher returns to be made by taking on some of the development risk as well. Is that basically the, the, the logic here? Absolutely, Jonathan. Well, it's a couple of things in terms of that. I think it's fair to say it's going to be really interesting to see what the increase in guilt rates does to discount rates in the market as well. I think the whole sector has upped discount rates, but we are still seeing a bit of a lag. We are still seeing transactions going through that are significantly lower than that. So there's always a bit of a lag on this coming through to the market. But it's fair to say, I think the pricing for operational subsidy-backed projects, particularly in solar in the UK, it's been very, very key, really. So in the one side, we haven't bought any operational subsidy-backed projects in the UK for over five years now. And the reason for that is that we don't necessarily see them as yield accretive for the returns that you have to pay. That could change with the uh, discount rates increasing and actually those values starting to drop for those that would bring them more in line with the sort of returns we're looking at. But the reason for moving into development, yeah, it's twofold in a way. One is access to pipeline in terms of that. So we want to work with good quality developers who are bringing forward projects that then we have a more guaranteed pipeline coming through. And the other side of it, yes, absolutely, is that to differentiated returns and the ability to make higher returns on that. I think that in itself, is split into a couple of parts that we were sort of discussing with investors when we were speaking to them yesterday and the last couple of days as well, is we are looking for a number of development pipelines here. The first we've managed to get over the line, our Madrid team has done a great opportunity in bringing forward this one in Spain, but we're also looking at them in the UK and could be open to them in other European markets as well as uh, entry points to new countries. The reason is actually we may get to a point where we're both building some of those projects out, but also looking to realize value on some of them as well. If we're lucky enough to get a lot of those coming through to ready to build stage at the moment, we'll be realistic. It might be more than we can actually deliver at the time. We're going to be quite uh, dependent on the markets to be able to raise. And we hope that it would be a good story when things start to change. But at the same time, there's a clear point and a valuation point as those projects get to ready to build. And we see it as a chance for a double uplift here. As a project gets its planning rights, gets consented, there's a clear market price there for ready-to-build assets because these are what we've historically been paying and we've been buying there. We could flip some of these and sell them out to other parties, actually, to carry on and develop and recycle some of that cash, and it helps pay for the development pipeline itself. And obviously, we would like to build out and run as many of those projects as we can ourselves too. So you've kind of referred there to one issue, I think, which obviously will be of concern to shareholders in the trust, which is you market yourself primarily as a yield instrument, uh, and you've delivered on that so far. And the current prospective yield is somewhere just under 7%. But the question, I guess, is as the subsidies wind down, you've got to bring in some other sources of revenue over time. And that may involve taking on a little bit of extra risk. Would you accept that? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think what we'd say in terms of positioning, the fund is definitely there to offer a high quality yield. And that's one thing. And it's delivered on its yield and its dividend every quarter since inception nearly 10 years ago now. That goes without question. I think one of the things we've got to be mindful of the markets that we're in at the moment. And actually, you look at what's happened with the gilt rates. If we're here 12 months ago, the real gilt rates were pretty much negative if you take inflation into consideration. So there was a real spread there 
between what the infra funds and the renewable funds could offer with a sort of five to six percent yield and actually what you're able to get on gilts. Now, we're very mindful that that has now dropped significantly. And if you start to see inflation come down, then the actual yield on listed infra and renewables is actually a lot closer to gilts. So you've got to look at this and think, what play are you offering now? And this is where we look at it. We will always look to offer a very solid yield, but I think with a modest level of capital growth in there as well. So that's really what we're looking for is to be able to deliver on that. Hence, the build out of the construction. We noted in there that the Spanish portfolio coming through this year has added about two pence per share on the NAV. And that's the sort of thing. It's that and also bringing through development projects. And we also see the battery storage projects. We've got the potential, if we uh, land another one soon, to have four projects coming online in battery storage in the next year as well. So all of these we see, I mean, it's modest level of capital growth alongside a strong yield is what we're targeting. Obviously, you benefited from higher power prices last year, or any of benefits from higher inflation as well. And against that, of course, you have to take account of what's happening to bond yields and your discount rate goes up and therefore your NAV comes down a bit. So it's a bit of a kind of weighing off different factors there. But power prices are falling at the moment. They're still high by historical standards, but they're falling and inflation is coming down and your discount rate has increased. So that's not the ideal environment in which to be looking for strong future returns. You're going to have to work a bit harder, aren't you, to get the results? I think it's a very fair comment there, Jonathan, and it's something we're very aware of as well. And I think it actually comes down to what have we got in our forecasts. So you look at it and think everybody has in here expectations that the power prices are going to drop in the short term, at least. Short to medium term, I think, is the bigger question. So I'd say we feel we're pretty well protected for the next couple of years. If you look in the annual report, we'll see that we're about 80% already fixed in terms of our revenues for this year, about 75% fixed for the next year and then about 66 for 2025, a position that we're looking to continue to build. I think the big question here, all the PowerCare consultants, there doesn't seem to be much change in the view that by the end of this decade, power prices are reverting down to the historic forecasted levels of about roughly 50 pounds real terms. I think the big question here is what happens in the medium term. So it's that point beyond 25, 26, to the end of the decade. And are power prices going to fall as sharply as people predict? I think the jury's still out on that one. Things are coming down quite significantly. But at the same time, none of us were predicting this to happen in the first place. You only have to go back a couple of years and power prices were on the floor about 25, 30 pounds per megawatt hour. And everyone was hoping they could get through to pay their dividends. So it's been a real swing in the markets. And I don't think it's changed any of our views on what the long term is here. And and those of us who work in the sector and actually big believers in renewables want renewables to bring down the power prices because that's part of the promise. I think a lot of us feel quite irked when you hear about power prices and renewables making loads of money out of them because actually when we do get that, all we want to do is deploy that into more renewables to generate and help bring power prices down. But looking at it, I think the other thing as well, you're right, inflation and power prices have been the two big drivers of the last couple of years. But we're very, well, we could be at the top of the roller coaster here. So I feel we're taking quite prudent views on inflation going forward. We're also taking, well, given that we fixed a lot, we're then taking prudent views of power prices going forwards as well. So all I'd say is it's already in our forecasts that things are going to drop off quite a bit. The question is, do they drop off quicker than our forecasts or about the same? And it's it's going to be very interesting because there's a real mixed bag of views around what happens with power prices for the rest of the decade. You've got some thinking they'll drop very quickly, others thinking that they could be or seeing reasons why they could remain above £100 a megawatt hour for maybe the next five or six years as well. Right. So, I mean, difference between 25, which is what you were talking about a few years ago, and 100 is significant. Last year, you did better than that in the UK, obviously. And then, of course, the government came along. Well, both the government and the EU came along. And uh, I'm not quite sure what's happening in Australia. But anyway, basically, (laughs) they came along and they said, well, you know, you're making windfall profits and we'd like a bit of that. They've approached it in different ways, the EU and the UK. That's obviously not necessarily positive. But what impact is it going to have on you over the next two, three hours? We don't know how long this is going to last or how it's going to be extended and so on. So please tell me, first of all, about that. And then secondly, we can talk about what kind of solution you think would be the best solution for managing what I think many people would accept has been 
an element of windfall profits you've made out of the last uh, couple of years, last year, anyway. Yeah, no, that's a fair comment. And I think, just first to say, I mean, when you say government in the UK, the question was, which government? <laughs> so I think we had uh, several of them, didn't we? And we had uh, interesting times during that period last year. The thing was, I think when we were looking back at it, it was the uncertainty more than anything. There wasn't a huge amount of pushback. I think there was an acknowledgement across the sector. And we were actually speaking to a lot of our close peers as well about how to approach this with government. We weren't expecting these prices anyway. None of us had them baked into our forecasts. So I think the major point was, as long as this is reasonable, nobody in the sector is necessarily pushing back against paying a contribution out of this. I think it was we didn't feel it was going to bring down the power prices themselves because there's further macroeconomic events that are driving that. But it will at least be making a significant contribution into the Treasury coffers, really, to help with other factors. That was it. I think the more damaging thing was actually the period of uncertainty there. Uh, so Rishi, when he was Chancellor, sort of announced extending the windfall tax from oil and gas through to other generators. That was back in May. And we actually saw the share prices for all of the sectors started to drop off a bit then. I think things were beginning to recover a bit during the summer, looking a bit better. We were able to start taking a bit of a view about what it could be. And then we had a whole change of government. And we had the Trust Administration talking about price caps. And that put a lot of fear into the market. And then we had the mini budget and everything sort of dropped off a cliff at that point. So I think the thing really was it was only in the weeks before the end of last year that we got final clarity on what the energy generator levy was going to look like. Looked at that, we all took the sectors of different views of this around Q3 and the NAVs. I think we managed to get, not saying we absolutely nailed it, but we got our assessment quite close, maybe a little bit by luck rather than judgment, but we were trying to get a view of where the generator levy could come out at. So actually, we put assessments through our Q3 NAV that were quite close. We unwound those discounts that we were putting on the power prices, reflected the EGL in there. We further tweaked it going into Q4 with the additional information that there's been out of it. And I think we'd say now that we've got it at least on the basis that's now going through legislation, we've got it fully reflected in our forecasts. And we will be paying. There are tens of millions of additional tax that we will be paying through to Treasury as a result of that, but that's already in our forecasts. I think if you then pick our results, the actual NAV on a pence per share basis would have been circa eight pence higher had it not been for the EGL. So it's in there and it's reflected. Similarly in Spain, you've got the clawback tax and levies in there. That's effectively capping power prices in Spain at about 100 20 euros per megawatt hour at the moment. And I think just to wrap that off, though, the point that we had, and we ourselves and peers were speaking to Bayes and speaking to others about this, I think there was, a, like I say, a general acceptance across the industry that these are higher profits than anybody could have expected. No issue with paying our fair share into everybody's doing their bit. And also with uh, renewables being a sort of marginal cost generator that we weren't necessarily paying additional costs in order to benefit from this. So no issue with that. I think the issue that just irked a bit more is that there is a rebate for oil and gas to invest back into the sector. There was nothing equivalent offered for renewables here and uh, then nothing coming out in the budget on Wednesday. So it, it's more of a perception. I think there was a bit of a trick missed here by UK government because there could have been some more incentives to channel investment into UK. And what's been done with the energy generator levy, I think it's kind of some ways a bit lucky. You don't know whether the government was really looking across the EU to see what they were doing because they've put a price cap of 180 euros per megawatt hour. Individual states can do their own thing and Spain has. But if you look at it, it seems to be a bit harder here in the UK than it is elsewhere. That might have a negative impact on investment into renewables in this country, is what you're saying. It doesn't help. I think that's the point, Jonathan. There was a bit of a trick missed there that actually there was nothing that really helps or stimulates further investment into the UK, which is a bit of a shame because I think the market is very well placed to grow as well. Is there a better solution? I mean, I think the industry was looking into some kind of system involving CFDs and so on, which would appear to be a slightly better system from both sides. Do you think you might get there and still at this stage? Or... Yeah, well, I think it's still on the table. I think the other thing is, all investors want really is clarity at the end of the day, is clarity of policy. So I think the CFDs is a decent mechanism for looking at this for new projects going forwards as well. We were engaged, there was talk about moving the existing subsidised projects, so like of our portfolio and others that are held onto CFDs. We were involved in discussions via 
the trade bodies and almost direct that uh, it wasn't as straightforward to make those changes in the timeframes that were thought about and wanted to be pushed through. So I think that's why they opted on the EGL in the end. But I think it was actually quite heartening to see the CFD round last year that we actually saw quite a significant amount of solar benefiting from that as well. So as you come through, I think the CFD is a good mechanism for this and it demonstrates the point there. And the number of developers we know, the wider Foresight Group has got investments of developers who are bidding projects into the CFD on a solar basis, that actually people are willing to forego those kind of prices. You're looking at about 50 to 60 pounds a megawatt hour on that. And people are willing to lock in at those prices with a bit of inflation uplift for a longer term and forego the high energy prices that are at the moment. I mean, I go back to everything I've looked at over the years. Infrastructure is nice, stable, relatively boring. We just want a reasonable level of return over a long period. That's what our investors are looking for, with maybe a bit of an element of capital growth in there. We're not looking for the the booms and the busts, really. So I think the CFD mechanism remains a good tool for doing that as well. I would just add, though, I don't think it's the be-all and end-all. We wrote this in our annual report a couple of years back. Actually, there is a burgeoning sector that the subsidy-free market could take off as well. And I think if it hadn't been for the pandemic and the power prices falling, we would have seen that becoming coming through to a much greater extent. We are starting to see a lot of corporate PPAs coming through. So corporates, including major utilities, blue chip companies, banks, even government entities themselves, looking to lock in their power prices on long-term contracts for about 10 to 15 years. And these can also help fund the growth of the solar sector and other renewable sectors as well. So I think a bit of a mix would be good. Okay, so this is not the sort of medium in which to go through the exact mechanism by which contract for differences work and so on, but it's an interesting approach. You think we're getting closer to a market where non-subsidized solar in the UK will be, still be a growth of business, is what you're saying? Well, we've seen it happening. It's already happening. I think we'd like to get in a point where we're either developing projects to be able to bid into those ourselves, but it's good to have a view because we've got to see how much of an allocation may be available for new projects, particularly solar ones coming through in a CFD round. I think the interesting thing to note here as well, that the projects that are coming through are much bigger than they were historically. So even the average projects are probably around the sort of size of some of the larger ones in our portfolio at the moment. And in order to meet the net zero targets, we're probably going to need more deployment I think you look at the uh, assumptions of some of the power curves and in terms of the prices coming down as well and the uh, things like capture discount, they're based on over one and a half gigawatts of solar being deployed year on year, which is pretty significant. And we're not at that level yet. So I think in order to get to that level, you probably need a mix of CFDs and other mechanisms in order to take them through as well. So let's come back then to what shelters are concerned about. You're doing all the work, of course, with the projects and and the diversification and so on, and the negotiating with government. But when it comes down to it, um, they want the dividend yield. And they're also hoping to make a little bit of capital return, as you say. But at the moment, because of what's happened, a combination of factors, the company's shares are trading at a discount. And most of the time since 2013, you've been trading at a premium. There were, I think, brief exceptions in 2016 and 2018, and again, uh, briefly after the pandemic. So what's going on there? What's driving investors' concerns that they've actually put your shares out of discount? And that's obviously making it harder for you to raise new new money and develop new projects and so on. So what do you think is driving that and uh, what can you do about it? I think there's some very strong macroeconomic forces at, at play here at the moment. And I think the more comforting thing for me with FSFL is you look across the market and pretty much everybody's in the same boat as well. And actually, it's it's been a pretty hellish last year for equities, equity raises. If you look out, we uh, I remember our brokers putting a slide together to show there was about three billion raised across the wider infra and uh, renewable sector in the first half of 2022, that then dropped off a cliff in the second half as well. I think you've got to look out there. You've got to look at what's happening with inflation and the guilt rates as well in terms of interest rates rises. My personal view on this is, in the discussions I've had with many people, I don't see this necessarily changing until there's more clarity on what's happening in inflation. I mean, we saw the OBR the other day saying they expect it to be down to 2.9% by the end of the year. I think that's a lower CPI number, as opposed to the RPI number. 
But um, you look at it, I think Vesta probably wants to see some confidence that inflation is actually coming down. And we see that coming through February, March, April, because there is a risk. You was seeing this a little bit in the US as well with what the, the Fed's doing over there, that core inflation is tending to be quite sticky. The labor market's very tight. There's all the wage bargaining going on. It's not conducive necessarily to it falling that fast. And obviously, the question there with inflation, if it's still remaining high or sticky, is what is the Bank of England doing? What is the Fed doing? Are they still having to push these uh, rates higher? And that's what we're seeing. The markets are very jittery at the moment. You just look out with what's happening in the US, with the banks creaking. It's the point of, have they now gone far enough where they need to step and bring it back because things are starting to break? We see the banks here in Europe as well. So there's very powerful macroeconomic forces at play here. And I think you alluded to it earlier at the beginning, Jonathan, with the sort of everything that's going on at the moment. Then you throw in war in Ukraine. Then you throw in levels of inflation we haven't seen for 40 years. I mean, this is one of the most unique years that we've been through at at least in my working life, I think you have to go back to the 70s, really, to see similar sort of macroeconomics environments. But then we've got a war in Europe going on as well. So I think that's the main factor. I look at it. The one thing that sort of comforts me out of this is, yeah, we're not alone in this. Look across the whole peer group. I mean, some trading a little bit better than others. I think there's probably, to be fair, those that are able to show a level of growth out of it are benefiting from things. I think there's a few timing points in terms of redemptions and things like that. We know that investors are having to sell and forced into sell positions. So it depends on a investor by investor basis as well. But I, I think we've got to wait to see if inflation is really coming down and then what moves the Bank of England here in the UK at least is making on that. Because if you're an investor, you're looking at this and thinking, well, I can get 4% on government bonds at the moment what are you guys giving me yes we're giving about a seven percent yield at the moment i think if markets are looking at it and see that there's a chance right inflation's beaten guilt rates could start coming down in the future maybe not this year but into next and at least even the expectation of that may allow a reappraisal of the listed fund sector and actually the value that they're offering and i think we're probably near that peak all coming down but still, we offer a good level of inflation protection. It's inherent there in the rocks, the power prices and everything else like that. And like you say, a modest level of growth. But I think that's the key thing. There's so much help. But then if I look at it another way, the infrastructure renewables markets are holding up relatively well versus some other equities that are sort of 30 to 40 percent down. So it's all relative, really. Right. So, I mean, just on that point, uh, I mean, I think your valuation is based on a 6.5% average inflation this year, falling, obviously, to 3% the next year, I think. But if inflation does actually fall, as, as the OBR is suggesting, uh, that would imply that that would have a negative impact on the NAV, right? So maybe the discount is just reflecting the fact that people think the NAV might actually come down a bit or might be lower than it's currently stated at. Possibly so, but I think I saw the other day we landed on that point and we felt was a, a midpoint. It's an average for the year as well. And at the moment, unless I missed something in the last couple of days, I think we're still in double digits on inflation. And at least I'd say that number is closer to an RPI figure because our rocks are RPI backed. Uh, our uh, CPI figure is a couple of percentage points lower than that, which would be more comparable to the 2.9% that the OBR were forecasting. So I think if you think about it for an average for the year, I could see a case where we're above it for the first half of the year could start to come below it in the second half of the year. But there'd be a balance, though. We'd be higher and we'd get more benefit from it in the first half of the year. And then after you take that, and then maybe we reappraise the uh, inflation rate for the second half of the year. I do think it's an average across the whole yeah. piece. Sure, it is true. If the inflation does come down that quickly, then it's quite likely guilt yields will come down as well. And so you'll get the, the, the benefit from that instead on the discount rate, I guess. So the final point then is about your balance sheet. And you've got a, quite a lot of debt. You've always had debt. And all the renewable trusts do have some debt. It's obviously very cheap debt, most of it long-term debt, but you've also got a credit facility. But that's quite well used up, isn't it? So, I mean, in an ideal world, you'd like to raise some more equity to get on with all your plans, would you not? But you're not going to be able to do that until the discount disappears, effectively. No, so I think getting out of the equity markets, like we know that the tide needs to turn in order to do that. The question is just how long does that take? I mean, and most of our long-term debt is all hedged. So the only unhedged debt is our revolving credit facility, as you rightly say, that we've got in place for two years. We've got the potential to extend it for a year at that rate. So I think we were kind of, it was nice that we got that put in place at a really good rate last 12 months ago. And it also has the potential for a accordion facility as well that we could draw on a little bit more to, to get through some of this. I think the other side of it we have to look at as well is we 
are opening to recycling capital in certain places as well. We've got a very good pipeline at the moment. We look at it and we've got a sufficient funding to drive forward what we want to at the moment. So the, the sort of first thing on the agenda there is the development pipeline in Spain. The beauty of these development pipelines is the down payment initially is relatively minimal. And we structure these deals that we make further payments, milestone payments, as those projects progress through. So there's milestones in terms of getting grid approval and then getting to ready to build. And the bulk of the payments would be on at ready to build stage. So if the projects aren't getting there, then we aren't paying out such large amounts, to be honest. The other side of it is, yes, we've got some more battery investments we would like to make. And also the other part of the strategy is moving the, the battery projects that we've got that we haven't started constructing yet onto a two-hour basis as well. We actually think at the moment we've got sufficient capital through all the various resources to be pushing that forward. But I, you're absolutely right there, Jonathan. I think we've got to work on the basis that it's not necessarily going to be that quick before we can get back out into the equity markets. Therefore, we're looking at alternatives, which may include recycling capital as well. So in other words, you might be selling something on to other, other parties, essentially. Possibly so, but it will be selling that on to reinvest in the strong pipeline that we're seeing. So just to wrap it up then, I mean, you've got your dividend target for this year, which is uh, an increase. It's not uh, an increase in line with inflation, but it's an increase. And you're confident you're going to meet that, obviously. It's well covered your dividend last year, and I think you're saying it's well covered again this year. But beyond that, the game has changed a bit, and uh, you're going to have a bit more nimble, maybe, and a bit more flexible in how you manage things to go on delivering the, the target that you want. I think that's a fair assessment, yeah, and the, the fund will continue to evolve. You don't stay still with these things, and that's one lesson that I've learned over the years from the various places that I work. So you keep looking to the future. I think I think investors and markets are getting more comfortable as well, moving to the development side. I've got to say, I mean, it's still a relatively small 5% of total GAV that we're playing in there, but it's got the ability to really drive returns. The nice thing here as well is that the wider foresight group that we work for already has expertise doing this. It's done it with its unlisted funds, so we're tapping into that level of expertise in structuring and overseeing those deals. But yeah, you've got to adapt to the macroeconomic environment you're playing in. So if the goalposts change, you have to uh, start playing on that other pitch, basically. So that's what we're looking to do. Okay, so that was Ross Drymer, the co-lead manager of Foresight Solar Fund at Ticker FSFL. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. I hope you find it of interest. And, well, it's onwards and upwards. We've clocked up 150 podcasts so far. And, well, we're going to be carrying on. And uh, there's going to be an awful lot to talk about in the next few weeks. As we know, always things of interest in the investment trust world, which is why we continue to do what we do. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.